We're reading from verse 1 to verse 10. That's page 719. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 11, which is on page 976. Page 976. And we're reading Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Ellie, thank you very much indeed. Um, <clears throat> well, we're looking at Isaiah 35 this evening, so uh, if you've still got your Bibles there, we're back on page 719. And I wonder if you're the kind of person who likes to fantasize about the dream house to live in, or maybe the dream place to go on holiday. I've uh, long since given up looking at the travels section of the Sunday papers because it just makes me envious. Um, I'll never be able to go to those lovely places. But um, sometimes we think about where we'd like to live and people at kind of my advanced age start thinking about where they're going to go when they retire, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, where would you like to live? You know, if you uh, totally had a free hand in all this, would you choose a barren urban landscape without trees, without green, without sunlight? Or would you choose a rural idyll? Mountains in the distance, green grass, a bubbling brook at the bottom of the garden. Where would you like to live? Would it be a land of deprivation and poverty? 
homelessness and sickness where the rich get richer and the poor poorer and nobody cares? Or would you prefer a place of security and peace where you're surrounded by happy family and kind neighbors? Where would you like to live? Well, of course, we all know what we want. But we also know that this dream world is exactly that, a dream. So what we do is we settle down and we make the best of what we've got. Always anxious that around the corner there may well be uncertainty, unemployment, sickness, bereavement, and so on. And it doesn't matter whether you're 19 or 90 or anywhere in between. We all live with both dreams on the one hand and disappointment on the other. And then we come to church and we read a passage like Isaiah 35 and we have this wonderful picture of God's perfect world. And we can be tempted to ask ourselves, does this chapter, which was written 2,700 years ago, have anything to say to me in the 21st century? Or is it just pie in the sky? Or might it just possibly have the answer to the problems of the human heart? Now, the context of Isaiah chapter 35 is fairly bleak. In the previous chapter, we read about the overthrow of Edom under the judgment of God. Now, Edom was the neighboring country to the southeast of Israel, and they were constantly hostile to God and to his people. And so Edom in the Old Testament are often kind of representative figures of all who stand against God. And the verdict is, Isaiah 34, grim and awesome judgment. In the following chapter, chapter 36, Israel is once again under the kosh from the Assyrians as they march on Jerusalem. So here we have, sandwiched in the middle, today's chapter, chapter 35, with its amazing prediction that God is going to bring to fruition the longings of the human heart. And verse 4, I think, is the key verse, where he says, Your God will come. He will come to save you. It needs a power much greater than ours to change our lives and our circumstances and our environment. And the Bible's message here in the Old Testament is, your God will come. The Bible's message in the New Testament is, your God has come. He has come to save, and he will come again. In short, the message of the Bible from beginning to end is summed up in one word, salvation. And in this glorious chapter, in Isaiah chapter 35, we, have, we reach the sort of high point of the first half of Isaiah, which sums up the joy of the believer when they know that they have been saved. So how does Isaiah describe the joy of God's saved people? Well, he begins by giving us three pictures of salvation. And if you want to follow where we're going, on the back of the blue notice sheet, there's a, an outline of this talk. 
So three pictures. The first picture comes from verse 1 and describes a parched land or a wilderness. Now, Israel, of course, knew all about deserts. After all, their fathers had wandered for 40 years through the wilderness, and it was an absolutely iconic moment in their nation's history. But not only that, they were surrounded on three sides by desert. But look at the transformation in verses 1 and 2. The barren, parched land will, like a crocus, burst into bloom. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom and it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy and so on. Now, in, uh, through the winter, in the, the little yard that's outside our back door, we don't get any sunlight. And it's really damp because it's been raining a lot. It never really dries out. It's got kind of slippy with that sort of green slime. And as you look out of the kitchen window, there is a barren bed. And Lucy works jolly hard at it, actually. And if you've ever been there in the summer, it's, it's, a, it's a rural idyll. We haven't quite yet got the bub bubbling brooks, but we're, we're, we're working on it. But it is barren, and it's bleak. And as I was preparing this sermon, I took a break um, and went and made a cup of coffee and looked out of the kitchen window. Would you believe it? I saw a crocus. I think this is the only time that crocuses are mentioned in the Bible. And then the next day, there were three crocuses, croci. Today, there are 12. And as a result of this morning's sun, they are in full bloom. Oh, what a lovely picture. This is a picture, this is the picture Isaiah gives us here of what happens when God comes to save. The desert is turned into a well-watered, beautiful garden. In the midst of death, suddenly there's the promise of life. First picture of salvation. Second picture, victims of war in verses 3 and 4. Now we're all too familiar, sadly, with these terrible images on our television screens. Refugees shuffling, shuffling along in a, in a camp in the South Sudan. Prisoners of war awaiting liberation. Parents weeping for their lost children. So here in Isaiah 35, where people's hearts fail for fear... And there's a complete loss of morale. God says to them in verses 3 and 4, Strengthen the feeble hands. Be strong. Do not fear. And why? Verse 4, Your God will come. He will come to save you. One day, all wrongs will be put right. As God the judge and God the savior finally completes his work of judgment and salvation. Right now, we're very conscious of life's disappointments and sorrows and tragedies. This week, particularly conscious. But as God's people, we can, verse 4, be strong and not fear, because your God will come. Or as Christians, we look back and say, our God has come. Emmanuel, God with us, was one of Jesus' names. He has come to save us. So in the midst of fear, God's salvation promises rescue. And then the third picture is the picture of the hospital in verses 5 to 7. And in this hospital, 
we find some terrible cases, blind, deaf, lame, and mute. This is a hospital with little hope. Rather like the hospital in Putney that used to be called the Hospital for the Incurables. And they kept that name for many years, even though it's a pretty bleak name, because it, they felt it helped with their fundraising. People would feel sorry for them all and give more. They've now changed it, I think, to the Hospital for Neurodisability. But basically, people go there who have little hope of getting better. Now here, in verses 5 and 6, we have the original Hospital for Incurables. But look what happens when God comes to save. Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the tongue, the mute tongue, shout for joy. Isn't it wonderful? God can turn around the most bleak cases. He doesn't just go into the surgery where a few people have got a bit of a cough and a cold and a bit of man flu. He goes to the worst cases, the blind, the dumb, the deaf. When God comes to save, no case is too difficult. Now, when does that happen? Look at verse 5. When does it happen? Then will eyes be open. Then the lame will leap. When is then? Well, we need to fast forward the clock, seven centuries, to John the Baptist. And John, who is now in prison, this is our second, uh, second reading, sends his disciples because he wants to find out if Jesus who they've been hearing about, is the one. Is Jesus the real deal? Is he the long-promised Messiah? And Jesus says to John's disciples, go back and tell John, the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and something that Isaiah 35 doesn't even promise, the dead are raised. Now that is quite something. You don't get that in many surgeries around here. In other words, Isaiah 35 has come to life in the person of Jesus. Your God will come, says verse 4. And Jesus is saying, yep, I'm Emmanuel. I have come. God has come. And our miserable, despairing hospital waiting room, and morgue even, has become a place of joy and laughter and singing. And this is the third picture of what happens when God comes to save. In the midst of despair, we find hope. Now, aren't these three wonderfully vivid pictures of the transformation that Jesus brings when God comes to earth and changes our situations? When God saves us, death to life, as a desert becomes a beautiful garden. Fear to rescue as the victims of war are liberated. Despair to hope as the incurably sick are healed. So those are the three little pictures of salvation. Second point is, um, just I want to go on a little excursus here uh, called the three areas, sorry, the three eras of salvation. And uh, you might find it helpful to look at this blue sheet because there is a beautifully drawn mountain range. Um, This isn't my idea. um, I've heard it years ago. I'm not quite sure who first had it, but it's a helpful way of understanding prophecy. There's a danger with prophecy that uh, 
In fact, I think some, probably the biggest danger is we think, whoo, Isaiah, it's a huge book, 66 chapters, haven't really got a clue what's going on. Let's go to Mark's gospel, shall we? And we never actually read it. That's probably the first danger. Second danger is if we do read it, we just say, oh, isn't that lovely? Uh, singing. Yeah. Well, I like singing. That's great. God wants me to sing. God wants me to be joyful. And we never really understand what's going on. Um, and we can be in danger of making some sort of pretty crass interpretations. I remember there was um, at my university, Christian Union, there was a, a, a chap there who had a particular, took a particular shine to a girl called Joy. And as he was reading his Bible one morning, he was in Isaiah 55. Hoo-hoo. You know what's coming, don't you? Which says, you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And he said, aha, clearly, that's a word from God. He wants me to go out with joy and get married. And they did. (laughs) And they have lived happily ever after. (laughs) Shows how gracious God is. It's not an excuse for hopeless interpretation of the Bible. Um, So let me just try and help us understand this um, these three eras of salvation as if you like when you walk in the hills you know you climb the first mountain and then you get to the top of that and you think aha there's another one and you go up the next one and there's a third and uh, so understanding prophecy prophecy is a little bit like like that um, the first peak is the immediate fulfillment in the history of Israel in other words what was Isaiah saying to God's people in the 8th century BC well Chapter 35, verse 2 says, When God comes to save, they will see the glory of the Lord. So in the immediate context, the God's people here see the glory of the Lord when the Assyrians are actually defeated. And that happens. We can read about it. It's a brilliant story for note-takers. 2 Kings 19, where the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians who were camped against them, who were about to destroy the city. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? We read about the Assyrians that when they got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. Work that one out. But it just reminds us, we've been uh, thinking in earlier sermons about how the temptation is always to resort to human answers to these problems and not to trust in God. It's interesting, just as we were praying that God would break ISIS, you can't quite picture how he'd do that. 185,000 Assyrians? Sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Hmm. They saw the glory of the Lord when God defeated the Assyrians. And indeed, they saw the glory of the Lord when they returned from exile. So if you like, that's the first peak. What is this prophecy saying to the original hearers? We've done that little hill, and we now move on to the next hill, the second peak, the intermediate fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. Now, it's always important in reading the Old Testament to ask, how does being a Christian affect my reading of this? Because, of course, this is... uh, Isaiah is part of the Hebrew Bible, so Jews will be reading this in a synagogue. How do, as a Christian, how do I understand this differently in the light of Jesus? Well, verse 2 says, when God comes to save, they will see the glory of the Lord. 
And notice the future element of Isaiah 35. 30 times in 10 verses, the future case is, future tense is used. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And so on. Your God, verse 4, will come to save you. Now, Martin Luther said that although we read the Bible forwards, we can only really understand it backwards. And as Christians, we don't look at this passage from Isaiah's perspective, but from the Christian perspective, from the post-Jesus perspective. Our God has come. We have been redeemed. We have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus, says Peter. John, in his gospel, a famous passage that's often read at carol services, says, we have seen his glory, writing about Jesus. We've seen his glory. Isaiah 35 says, they will see his glory. We have seen his glory because we've seen Jesus. The wedding at Cana in John 2 says Jesus revealed his glory in performing the miracle. John 17 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he was glorifying God in his death. So that's the second peak, the intermediate fulfillment and the difference that Jesus makes. And then the third peak is the, the peak of heaven. the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy in the new creation or in heaven. We have seen Jesus' glory, uh, God's glory in Jesus, but as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, now we look through a glass darkly, but then, in other words, when we get to heaven, we will see him face to face. We will see him in all his glory. And Revelation 21, verse 23, says that there will be no sun or moon in heaven because the glory of God gives it light. Isn't that lovely? So we live in the now and the not yet of the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah says you will see the glory of the Lord. And in Jesus, we have seen the glory of the Lord now already. But also in the new creation, we will see Jesus in all his glory. So, to our final point, the one message of salvation, joy. God's salvation always brings joy to his people. And verse 4, God promises that he will come to save them. And when he does so... We see in verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and sorrow will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We've got one last picture here and it's of the superhighway, familiar to cyclists in London, except that this is in verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And because it's God's highway, it's a superhighway. But this is nothing like Boris's superhighway, which is a place marked by dangerous drivers, angry cyclists, 
and grim determination and frequent accidents. None of that in God's highway. No, look at how God's highway is described. It's the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, verse 8. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. This is the superhighway of hope and of peace and of joy for those who are walking with the Lord, the redeemed, in verse 9, those who've put their trust in Jesus, who are walking on their pilgrimage back to the heavenly city. Of course, in Isaiah's time, he was thinking about the exiles returning from, uh, from uh, Babylon back to Jerusalem and uh, how happy they'll be, no doubt, when you've been liberated. Isn't it one of the, the great sights? I can still remember Terry Waite coming back from years in captivity and the joy, the ra- non-stop press coverage before we had 24-hour press coverage and non-stop press coverage of Terry Waite coming back and being reunited with his family and the joy of that. And we occasionally see it, don't we? When a captive is released, what joy. There is no greater joy. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. And the Christian life, brothers and sisters, can I just, let's just remind ourselves, is a, is a life of joy. There is also such a thing as Christian tears and sorrow. Of course there is. And I've wept tears of, of sorrow and sadness for Julietta this week. I've wept tears because of our broken world and that even in the heart of our fellowship we have someone who's hurting so much. I've wept at the frustration of being unable to help. And we're not alone. Jesus, remember, the one who brings salvation, he wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Jesus wept over the impenitent city of Jerusalem. And for Christians who live in both the now and the not yet of prophetic fulfillment, our lives will be a strange mixture of sorrow and joy because we live in those in-between times. We know the joy of God's kingdom that has already come. The fantastic promise of forgiveness and liberation. But we also experience frustration and the tears of the not yet kingdom. We're not fully saved yet. We still stumble and fall. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed. In fact, they're falling apart. If you don't believe me, just look in the mirror to check it out. I I certainly find this... And you need to check the the mirror to to remind myself that one day I'm going to have a perfect body. Isn't that marvelous? Paul says we groan and long for the resurrection of the body. But if you're a Christian this evening, you can still rejoice. Even in the tears, our our lives are still marked by joy because... We're not only on the heavenly superhighway, we are also 
We're God's pilgrim people. We're dancing along this road home. Our sins have been forgiven. We're reconciled to God. We can call him Father. We're on the highway home to the place where sin and sorrow and pain and death will be abolished forever. On the gravestone of Martin Luther King are written these words. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And one day, the Christian will be able to say, verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord has returned. We have entered Zion with singing and everlasting joy is crowning our heads. Gladness and joy have overtaken us and sorrow and sighing have flown away. Thank God Almighty, we will be free at last. Hallelujah. Let's pray.